From Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. So, what have you been drinking or not drinking recently? <sighs> Joanna, this is like one of our last podcasts with you. Yeah. It's going to be sad. <laughs> it will I mean, be sad. for a while, not ever. No, no, just for a little while. I know, but it's going to be Zach yeah. and I. <laughs> and then at some point, it could just be Zach. Everybody, who's so excited <laughs> for just Zach? <laughs> oh, man. I can't wait to just talk into the microphone by myself for 30 minutes. That sounds great. You get so many reviews. <laughs> Zach's the best uh, solo. <laughs> uh, so, best host award. Yeah, best host award. But so, Joanna, yeah. what have you been up to? Okay, so this past weekend, Evan and I went to Lalu, which is a lovely wine bar in Brooklyn. Oh, Adam also went there the night yeah, after, it turns turf, out. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, so I mean... <laughs> Whatever. Now I, I knew. I, I knew the second I saw you guys go there, I was like, "Well, I can't use that." But I drank this week too. But anyways, continue. <laughs> okay, but I'm sure you drank other things because we um, Evan had some really nice Chenin Blanc that I had a sip of. It was very delicious. Um, and then a, a dessert wine. I whatever muck muck them is how it was called. Mm-hmm. Anyway, oh yeah. I've never had that type of dessert wine before, um, and that was really delicious. But I had a I had a non alcoholic cocktail. Okay. And here's my thoughts. Go. It was good, right? Like, fine. But I'm just like, I don't like non-alcoholic cocktails, I've decided. You know why? Because it's just not fair anymore. I just want to drink a cocktail. and <laughs> That's what Naomi thinks, too. Yes, and it's Joanna, like, you can. I know. No, it's like, it's, I, I've, of course, I've had sips over the course of this nine-month period. Great. But, like, I think there's just something so unsatisfying. I've had a lot of non-alcoholic cocktails as well. So unsatisfying about non-alcoholic cocktails. Like I'd rather in many instances just drink like sparkling water. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I said, I think these are different from like what I was talking about last week with the Gia or Guy or however mm-hmm. you say that brand. These like kind of canned beverages that are non-alcoholic because there's so much thought that goes into these non-alcoholic cocktails they're very thoughtful. There are a lot of ingredients, like just as there would be in a cocktail. And it's just, I don't know. It just doesn't, it doesn't do the trick for me. Yeah. That's I mean, that's, that's, that's basically. my hot take for today. I, I think that's, I think that's. Is part a, of it that you're still paying thing. like 15 bucks for it? Right. I mean, yeah. that's the I feel other like that's part, part of the issue for me. Yeah. I mean, and I get why, you know. There's plenty of, you know, literature out there as to why these things cost as much as they do. And I, I understand, but yeah, but at the bottom, at the end of the day, I, I'm just like, it's just not the drink for me in this time. <laughs> yeah. So what about you, Zach? <laughs> yeah, I, can, I can empathize with that. Well, it's funny. I'm like, you know, I was thinking about how for me, as we reach the the very end here of, of dry January for me, I was thinking about how I would be so disinclined and granted, you know, I'm going one month and not approximately nine without drinking much or, you know, more than sips or whatever you're doing, Joanna. But it is true that I have like zero interest in ordering the various non-alcoholic cocktails or whatever people, zero proof cocktails, whatever people are calling them when the few times I have been out to eat uh, in January and it's some of it's the cost, some of it's the fact that, as you were saying, I, I just don't think any of them will be truly satisfying. Yeah. But I also think that the other part of it is like, in a way, my issue is almost like, in the same way that I'm 
generally when I look at a cocktail list, disinclined to order the cocktail that has 14 ingredients. I'm I'm not interested in a drink that requires that many ingredients in it to taste good. Mm. It could be good, but it, in a way it feels like, especially with a non-alcoholic cocktails, it's like the they're they're sort of padding out the ingredient list to justify the cost, to justify the existence of the drink. Because like a simpler set of ingredients, even if it made something that tasted good, people would be like, well, wait, this has three ingredients. How is it $14? So if you put 11 ingredients on the description, it even if, you know, cost-wise, it's yeah. not that much more expensive. Yeah. yeah and, that's and a good point. That, that, you know, it's like, yeah, they're like, a, I mean, there's a lot of things where like, long career in the restaurant industry has ruined certain elements of like going out to me or at least let's say uh altered them i also have like a really hard time anytime i go out and i see even other people getting bad service it's like it puts me on edge and my caitlin is like just just ignore it i'm like but i i can't that person is like doing a bad job i want to like be like i'm sorry to the guest or alternatively if guests are being shitty to to the server or whatever i also have a really hard time with that but anyhow point is what have i been drinking (laughs) A lot of coffee. Uh, we mm. bought an espresso machine. What kind? And I, uh, so we bought we bought the Breville. So it's kind of yeah. What's your we, method? We did the thing where like, what do you mean? What? what Adam's like, how very do I competitive make about this. You have to tell him all the details. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you and I can. Are can, you measuring uh, out the beans can, first, just, and then are you you know you weighing no. them, and then are you grinding? What's up? What's up? Did you also buy a blind portafilter, or are you just going with like what you got with the Breville? I'm going with what I got with the Breville. Um, cool. Have you I dialed it in yet or no? <laughs> yes. I'm a firm believer that I like coffee a lot, but I am not an obsessive and I never want to be an obsessive. Mm. And I decided a long time ago that the minute I started weighing, uh, getting a scale out to weigh my – <laughs> uh, But the, the problem is that is true if you are using a true full-on plumbed espresso machine. The, the truth of the matter is that the Breville, which I think does a pretty good job, and mm, I've does. pulled many, many shots of coffee in my life. The truth is that it, as a machine, is, I think, not – it's just – it's a different scale of thing. And so you're not going to get enough consistency out of it in the first place to make obsessing over whether it's one – or one gram more or less, <laughs> it, to my eyes, worth the time. Are you are, – did you get like the Breville that's like – that has the included grinder or you have the grinder separate? Yes. Include a grinder. grinder. And yes, I use the grinder. Yeah, you know who loves that one is Aaron Goldfarb. There you go. He's a big fan yeah. of that one. I don't let it uh yeah, I don't let it determine for me how much to grind. Like I manually control the yeah. quantity of beans, but I or of grounds, but I don't measure it afterwards. Uh, do you just pull espresso amount. or do have, you like are you making espresso drinks too? Oh, I make espresso drinks. No, I'm not a, I'm not a big shots of espresso person most okay. of the time. So like you'll make like uh, a cappuccino do, or something. Exactly. But what I was going to say is that like my favorite thing to do of late, and I don't know why I hadn't done this before, but it's like, it is actually delicious. And I enjoy doing it at home is like, I've started like messing with putting things in the milk as I steam it. So like, obviously, turmeric, big, big one and delicious Uh and like fun. Um, I also do a lot of like, Look at things in that kind of range, cardamom, clove, etc. Yeah. And it's like, I'm like, wait a second, why wouldn't I be doing this? Like, yeah, yeah. it's nice to have a little added flavor or and or color. It looks kind of cool. And it's very easy to do at home. You know, you just have to stir it into the milk before you foam it. And um, I have a lot of experience foaming milk again, made many, 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 many coffee drinks in my life. And it's fun. Like it's a it's a fun 
like little thing. And I mean, I will be doing this. We got it before January. So I've been doing it for a little while and obviously we'll continue to do it afterwards. But it is true that like in a period of time when I'm not having alcohol, the like coffee drink that I make for myself becomes the like beverage experience that I focus on for the day. And so, yeah, you know, I do, I spend a little extra time on my latte in the morning. Um, probably so. Have I pulled a shot, discarded it and pulled another one? Cause I didn't like the way it looked. Yes, I have also done that. So, you know, I am, I'm bored. I'm obsessive adjacent. I'm just not measuring with a scale. Uh, potato, so, potato. That's uh, a lot of what I've been drinking. <laughs> How about you, Adam? I think, first of all, just to be clear, I think the Breville's a very quality machine. Uh, yeah, me too. If use. anybody wanted Adam's thoughts on the Breville, here they are. I have one. <laughs> I know yeah. you do. Well, not just Adam's thoughts, not just Adam's thoughts, but the thoughts of other Vine Pair contributors, apparently. Yeah, yes. Aaron's has, it's a great, it's a very quality machine, and I think it pulls a very good shot of espresso without going overboard, right? We're not trying to open little cafes in our apartments or houses <laughs> if you live in Seattle. Uh, but like, it's a quality machine. It pulls a good shot. I like, you know, I liked finally honing in on the bean that I liked. I'm a big fan of passenger coffee. That's where we get our beans from in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Yeah, by two pounds uh-huh. at a time. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think it's fun. So good for you, man. It's uh, I, I yeah, it, I think it's a lot more. I like the sort of the romance and routine of it in the morning. It's just like it's nice to go through it and do it as opposed to like putting a pod in and like pulling them and like Nespresso like like it's just not the same. I just don't think pods are taste the same or they don't. Are, are as strong. They don't. Yeah. They don't, and they are not as strong. No. And my mom was like a pod person, and I finally talked her into the last time. Well, they were here this weekend uh, getting a Breville, but the one that has the integrated grinder and will actually just fill the filter for her. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, I'm not going to do it. But I was like, it'll still be a better cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I got to have some really nice things to drink this past week uh, thanks to some – friend meetings and some work meetings so on the on the work front i got to go uh finally to one white street um oh yeah how was it it was really it was really lovely mm-hmm. uh, i think dustin uh wilson who's a master on his team do a really nice job there and i we ordered a few nice bottles of wine for the group and one of them was one of my favorite producers in barbaresco called chigliuti and we had their 2013 v erte which is really delicious. Um, and then this weekend, the reason I was at Lalu mm-hmm. was because I lost a bet. Oh. And so uh, <laughs> there was a long, so I have a very close friend and he and I are both big Auburn Tigers fans and he's a doctor here in the, in the city. So I was always, I always hoped to win because he's a doctor and I'm not, but I lost <laughs> and it was on what our, what our finishing schedule would be. I mean, our finishing record would be, and I was overly confident going into the season and should not have been. And he was right. And so we did not have a schedule that was above 500. I mean, a win percentage was above 500. And so I owed him because I'm actually the one who got him into Nebbiolo and Barolos and Barbarescos. So I owed him a bottle of Barolo Mm. and he was kind enough to come to Brooklyn. And I was like, well, I know there'll be good Barolo at Lalu. So we got a, um, a bottle of 2014 GD Vajra, ah. their Rivera cuvee, which was really delicious. Nice. And, you know, then Dave also came over and was really uh, just an amazing host. And he poured me something that I'd never had before, which was a 2001 Alsatian Riesling. 
Wow. Um, Ooh, yeah. It was very, it was quite old, and I had not had an Alsatian Riesling that old before. And that was just super cool. He brought it from home uh, and was pouring it around the restaurant. And I was like, He's the best. <laughs> I was like, Thanks, Dave. Um, which was really, really cool. Um, and then when my parents were in town, we took them to Laser Wolf. Oh, yes. And uh, I had just like a, a very nice Etna Rosso, like, Tenuta de, de Terranere, mm-hmm. which was nice, but just the whole the whole vibe of like, like I get it. It was my first time at Laser Wolf, and like I get it. Like mm-hmm. the food is very good, but the view is ridiculous. Like you're sitting on the roof of this hotel in Williamsburg, looking at the entire New York skyline, and just like the entire concept is great, right? You order your skewer, mm-hmm. and it just comes with unlimited salads and dips and pita and it's just like and like rice it's just like a great concept of a restaurant and you just see everybody around you having fun and then they take all the food away and they bring you soft serve the best and you're just like okay this is dope Mm -hmm. so that those are the the, the things the best things i drank this last week nice uh so this is a conversation we've had before but it's it's getting more dire people and, uh, yeah. and that is that it really is. I feel like we were just talking about this, too. I can't believe this report is out again. It's getting bleak. And that is that, uh, you know, while the wine industry continues to dig its head in the sand, they continue to only have one market that is growing, which is boomers. And while millennials and Gen Z and Gen X continue to drink and are drinking at a fair rate, they are turning more and more and more away from drinking wine towards spirits and seltzer. Yeah. Uh, spirits being the leader. Uh, it's what we've talked about before. This is nothing new, but I think it's just, again, like it just continues to reinforce like, yes, premiumization is happening. It is not happening as fast as it was, but the only area of growth is boomers. Yeah. And I honestly, like my answer to that is not like, oh, it's because boomers. It, my answer is it's because these fucking companies still only talk to boomers. Like they... They've continued to only talk to boomers. So, of course, that's why boomers are the only market that's growing. And, like, I say this from being a publisher of the last almost decade that has watched them continue to do this and, like, dip their toe into talking to millennials and Gen X and Gen Z, but not at any real meaningful way, not in any real meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And so... Again, we've always talked about this, like the spirits industry has always been much more risk averse, willing to, sorry, no, willing to take risks, much more willing to take risks, sorry. Uh, The spirits industry has always been much more willing to take risks and they go after the next new market. They are, they always looking to grow and they embraced these generations much faster. They play on the platforms much faster. They adopt the new publications much faster. They adopt the new way to communicate much faster and there's this turn. And I think, you know, it's it's kind of unfortunate because I, I really think now it's going to take some really, really drastic moves by wine to get consumers to come back, especially when the majority of wines out there are now very expensive. And I'm going to say something that I think is going to be really polarizing, mm-hmm. but I, I, I've been thinking about it a lot and I think it's the only way. And I think it is that as much as the high-end wine community and Psalms do not want to admit this, they desperately need big wine right now. 
They desperately need the big brands with money who are going to help market and talk to this generation because this generation is clearly not listening to them. They are going to these restaurants and they are not listening to the Psalms on the floor and they are not ordering the bottles of wine that they are, that they are promoting. They are ordering cocktails. And then, and these, these wines, I'm sorry, it's just true. Do not have the marketing budgets to talk to them in every other facet of their life. And these larger companies do. And the reason I thought about this was because we had Louis Jadot in the office yesterday. And I thought about what the winemaker was saying. He presented to the entire team at our bar. And he was talking about how all you're hearing in the American press is high-end Burgundy, high-end Burgundy, expensive, expensive. And what they have tried to do and do very well is the everyday Burgundy that is accessible. Because if, if they don't exist, then people will ultimately forget about Burgundy. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting. Like he said, like, they are needed. And you can tell that, you know, when you when I talked to people with the company that were here, you can tell that, like, that is very much respected in Burgundy and understood, right? That, like, not not everything can be Premier Crew and Grand Crew. Like, there are going to need to be very consistent brands that continue to bring people into the Burgundy category and that have the money to market and spend and be on the shelves in the grocery stores and right. everywhere else that these niche producers cannot be. And there has been this, this such this massive rejection of the last 20 years, especially in wine of these companies. And now I don't see any other way. I really don't. And these companies are premiumizing. So I get it. They want to reject this, this, the entry level wines that these com- some of these companies make. Fine. You, you don't want to, you, you, you don't think that their $4 Chardonnay is, is for you. Great. But a lot of these companies now own high end wines and they are able to put them in many more places. And I think there needs to be more of an embrace in the same way you see the bar community embrace lots of these big brands, even though they support all the craft brands as well. Like bartenders see that these, big brands are sort of like have when, value. So, so someone said this to me when tequila rises, all tequila rises, right? Like, I don't think that the wine industry understands that when Cabernet rises, all rises mm-hmm. when American wine rises, all, all rises. And this, there has been this huge, just tension between these two groups for way too long at this point. And I really think it's fucked the category. Mm hmm. Yeah, I want to make a couple of points here. So one is uh, what we were referring to earlier is the uh, annual uh, report from the oh, yeah, Southern Valley Bank on the, <laughs> yeah. the wine industry. And and as Adam said, we and Joanna said too, we've talked about this in various uh, facets over the last year, including a year ago when this report came out with similar conclusions. I wanted to just mention a couple of things that are noted in this report yeah. that I think are really instructive to what Adam is saying and what we're talking about here in general. The The first of them is that if you look at the data they have on the the various age bands that they break out, and they break it out kind of decade by decade. So, you know, 20 to 29, which obviously is really 21 to 29, 30 to 39, et cetera. A thing that I have, we have heard that is clearly disproven by this kind of report, that 30 to 39 band, the millennial band, is both the largest population group in the country right now, percentage-wise, and also is the percentage-wise that drinks the most um, in terms of like percentage of the population that drinks at least infrequently. So it's not about a rejection of drinking. And I think that has generally been disproven. Yeah. Yes, there are people who don't drink throughout 
all age cohorts. They may get more attention in the media in younger people now than they used to, but there have always been huge chunks of the population that don't drink for health reasons, religious reasons, whatever, right? So it's not about, oh, millennials, Gen Z don't drink as much. They definitely do. Part of the the difference is, is that the millennial cohort, the 30 to 39 cohort, is drinking plenty. But what people in Gen Z and millennials have chosen to drink is a much wider spectrum of drinks and is much less interested in wine in a broad sense and also in a sort of specific sense. So you look at even the the a thing that we've talked about in the pod for, before for sure is how the dedicated wine list has been displaced by the overall drinks list. And it's put wine in a much less premium position. You know, it isn't a sort of specialty thing. And you see more and more people going out to drink, even in restaurants, and what used to be the sort of the bastion of wine sales on premise, right? You know, because it certainly wasn't bars. And wine is losing share there. That's got to be deeply worrying. And that's worrying across all segments of the wine industry because it's not just, a okay, the bulk, you know, the large-scale production grocery store wine is losing shelf space and market share to other categories. It's even in the places that used to be, you know, deeply devoted to to wine, wine is losing sales. And that that's, a, you know, there's a lot going on there. We can talk more about it. But but there's a lot of interesting in data in here. I think the other thing that needs to be talked about, and, and the Silicon Valley Bank report is largely centered around the California wine industry. Mm-hmm. So it's important to note that, that a lot of these conclusions are most specifically tied to California. But A, California is by far the biggest production area in the country. So, you know, this is a not just a California thing in a lot of cases. And some of these trends, which may be more prominent in California, but are also coming to bear in other large producing states like Oregon and Washington and New York. The other big one is that we may be in this position where there may be too much acreage under vine for consumer demand. I mean, they make the point in the report that despite multiple years in a row of relatively small crop, we're not seeing a rise in price even in bulk wine. And you would think that if there is decreasing supply, Mm -hmm. that price would have to go up because, well, where, you know, there aren't the grapes. But what's really happening is the supply is decreasing, but demand is also decreasing, which is keeping price static on bulk wine for the most part. And that's got to be deeply worrying, right? Like we are seeing across the board almost outside of, as Adam said, you know, sort of, you know, the, you know, uh, baby boomers just demand at leveling off at best, if not outright decreasing among these other population groups and across kind of all categories of wine. And like, yeah, I don't know if there's an easy solution, but it's definitely no one is no one's doing it right as of now. I mean, one, I think very big example, like one one just anecdote here that I read recently, which is I think very fascinating and speaks to the problem, right? So I didn't realize this, but according to like a drinks business report recently, like data that they crunch shows that the largest drinks experimentation on premise happens at nightclubs. Okay. Wine's not at nightclubs. Wine hasn't even tried. Mm -hmm. Right. Wine keeps saying. You know what is? What is and what is growing like crazy is champagne. Champagne, Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. One. That's the one category that's really killing it right now, and it's because it fits that occasion very well. Well, and also because, Zach, Champagne's not saying, uh, blah, 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 you should be with the brie. Like, they don't care. 
they like there's so much yeah John Perignon made glow in the dark labels because they wanted to be a nightclub exactly like, it's very obvious exactly they see that exactly <laughs> like they they're not there's just again there is this massive tension between you know actually reaching the masses and saying we need it to be only this the product should be only consumed this way I cannot tell you how many people come to this office and say our wine should be consumed with food but what if it's not. Like, or who say, you know, we only want our wine with these types of dishes or this type of cuisine or these types of restaurants or, well, something has got to give here, folks, because the sort of like the amount of, you know, steadfastness that everyone in wine has had for this long is clearly failing. Well, I have a question about this. So, so this is like the second year, what, where, um, Overall wine consumption has showed a second year of negative growth. Right? Yeah. So we talked about this last year. <laughs> These are the same trends that we were seeing last year. Why do we feel like, you know, there, it's very clear future sales weigh on the industry's ability to appeal to a new generation of consumers. But we're not seeing that. And we're not seeing any effort made in in that direction. So why? And also... And I, I don't know, I was having a really good conversation with a few people earlier about this. Do we think that it's because the wine industry is waiting for these younger age groups to kind of age into wine? That's what they're trying. That's what they think. It's not going to happen. But that's what they think. They think that they, when they turn 60, suddenly yeah, our generation think. is going to start buying wine. That's what they think. And they're wrong. The generation that drank wine was drinking wine when they were young, bankers, lawyers, et cetera, because it was and because at the time wine felt more accessible, wine was talking to them, you know, and at the time, I mean, I think what nobody I'm not trying to make this about me, hmm. but at the time, you know, nobody was there was no wine press when this baby boomer generation really was coming of age. And then there was these few publications that started. And because there had been no wine press in the, in the past, they invested in them. And these were the publications that were speaking to this generation because this generation was actually of the same generation, right? It was people starting them like Parker, Parker Spectator, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Enthusiast. They were, the, they were that same generation. So it made sense. But now like the wine industry is so tied to those voices still today. And they're not working and partnering with the younger voices they're not talking and like they're also thinking that their way in is like psalms which has clearly been proven that it's not Mm -hmm. that psalms are not these amazing tastemakers i think everyone thought they could be like chefs and bartenders they're just not and they're not going out they're not finding other creative ways they're not telling different unique stories like it's funny because i'm I'm sitting here on this podcast being like we've been saying talking about this shit for fucking 10 years like that's what we're trying to do right like if we're meant to be a younger wine publication who speaks to a younger generation of people then i feel like part of this is on us right and the readership does show that they read about it but the thing is i think that it takes more of a of a willingness for the wine producers i mean if you want me if you want to be clear right all these, all these top wine producers, a lot of them don't send to us. You know, they they send to Spectator and Enthusiast still. I mean, I've had wine companies say, oh, you know, you're seen as the millennial site. So, you know, we don't even get the top visits when the people are in town. Mm-hmm. You know, and I again, I think that that's a lot because they just, they don't care. And, you know, hubris is a hell of a fucking drug. 
And it's going to really hurt them in the long run because they're sitting here ignoring this generation, hoping it ages in. And like, when has that ever happened before in anything else when it comes to luxury and high-end products? People don't age in. They are talked to by those products, right? Like the the high-end watches are talking to a younger generation. The high-end fashion is talking to a younger generation by the people that are walking the runway in their clothes, by who's being seen in them. Like that's what's happening. And wine just isn't doing that. Yeah. And then I want to make a, Zach make a, makes a point, good point about this really quick. Yeah, please. I think that the other piece of this that is an, I think, fundamentally inescapable problem for wine, and I, or at least a lot of wine, not all wine, but a lot of wine, is setting aside the who is who are these brands talking to, setting aside the, you know, what are the occasions on which people drink wine, the idea of people as wine drinkers and as wine consumers. So, isn't just about brands saying, oh, we should be enjoyed with meals, which is a challenging way to make a, a sort of a, a brand proposition in America where so much drinking happens disconnected from food consumption yeah. in a way that may not be true in other cultures. But it's also because when you ask people, and I've asked people this at classes, I've taught and things like that, you know, do you think of yourself as a as a wine, you know, a wine lover? Do you consider yourself a wine, you know, kind of aficionado? So many people connect that specifically with collecting wine and collecting wine is something that simply is either impossible for or unappealing to younger generations for reasons that go way beyond the wine industry right they have to go with you know low rates of home ownership among younger generations for reasons that again we're not an economics slash politics podcast but you know it's uh inescapable that whether you're talking about Gen Z or, or millennials or even Gen X, but especially millennials and, and Gen Z, the sort of share of generational wealth and the ability to do things like buy a house is much, much lower than previous generations. And, you know, what? how hard is it to have a wine collection if you're a renter, you're living in a big city, you have a small apartment, it's just your wine collection is necessarily going to be small. And you might think of yourself as not so much a wine consumer, because, you know, who wants to you know, especially by fine wine and say, I'm going to hold on to it for a decade, all these other alcohol categories and even sparkling wine, which is, I think, part of why it's succeeding so much right now, say, open us tonight, drink us now. We're not a for five years from now proposition. We're a, the instant gratification proposition in a way. And yes, there's a lot of wine. The, the data is also clear that a lot of wine is purchased and consumed the day it's bought. Right. I mean, that's true of all alcohol, mm-hmm. right? People purchase for that day and that night. But if you're talking about building wine as a part of people's lifestyle in a way that, you know, certainly the wine industry would like to be in a way that it became for the boomer generation, that happens not just through people purchasing at the grocery store on their way home from work or whatever, mm-hmm. but it also happens through telling them that wine and specific wines are going to be a part of their life for decades to come. Mm-hmm. And that's just not – wine has not found a way to make that compelling argument to our generation and younger because – our generation younger has a unique set of circumstances. It's not a palate preference thing. It's it. Some of it's a lifestyle thing, but a lot of it is just a living situation thing that I don't know that wine can solve because fundamentally, a lot of the wines we're talking about, you know, especially on the higher end, are just that's just what they are. You know, yeah. wine is a long term process. Yeah, it's purchased, it's sold to consumers before it's ready to drink in a lot of cases, and that's just a reality of the market. It's just I don't know that there's a way around that, but it does. I think kind of 
inhibit wine's ability to speak to a younger generation outside of these types of wines, these styles of wines, you know, whether it's champagne or Sauvignon Blanc or something that are really like, drink us right now, rosé, another one, right? Like people get those those categories are doing fine. They understand them and they understand the reasons to drink them. And I think like you were saying earlier, Adam, it's it's the rest of the wine that people don't understand that prevents them from feeling like wine people or wine lovers. And then there's that disconnect as well between that mass market wine and fine wine that kind of prevents the loop from closing. Yeah. And I think that there's also this thing where like there's, there just seems to be again in wine, this like, that's the way it's always been done. So that's how we do it type mentality that you just don't see in lots of other things. And look, I do want to say, I'm not talking about disruption here. I'm just talking about following trends. Like not everything is meant to be disrupted. Like I would, I think we need to have a conversation at some point in time about DTC because I think that in all honesty, like we've COVID has proven that it was a mirage for DTC and it's probably never going to happen for alcohol Mm -hmm. in the way that people think it was going to. But I do think that there are simple things that wine could have done in the past that we talked about data we were seeing in our own data sets that just never happened. For example, okay, fine. This is another wine that is, you can, you can drink young, but rosé. Sure. Right. We have talked about how rosé, when you look at the demand for it amongst what consumers on our site are reading about and when they are searching for it and when they are interested in it is year long with spikes around the holidays as well, with searches happening in the winter. But every time you look at when wine companies promote rosé, it's the traditional season. It's like, well, why would we why would we ever do that otherwise? Why would we ever hold back products so we can make sure we have rosé in the our rosé in the stores at all times? Like these are easy things to say this is a category of wine that this generation has identified they love. They this generation that everyone is saying isn't drinking wine is the generation that created the rosé boom. Now tell them they can only drink it 2 months of the year. Right. <laughs> so then they're going to say fuck off. Yeah. Because no one's telling me that I can only drink tequila at certain times. No one's telling me how to drink bourbon. No one's telling me what to do with the vodka or how I should drink my seltzers. Like, but wine is. Wine is saying, sorry, sorry, that's a summer it's beverage. A summer water. And it's stupid. I don't get how that happens. It's a marketing thing, yeah. right? It's and, it's not and, like and breaking it's, tradition. It's a marketing thing. Right. And it's stuck, it's stuck in yeah. traditional marketing cycles that for whatever reason, they feel like they can't break. And so then everything happens based on that, right? Product doesn't get held back. Product gets sold out. Product then gets discounted in the fall instead of just keeping it at the same price it should be because people still pay that premium price point into the fall and winter like because people want it and they like it and they found that it's enjoyable. But wine says, no, 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 no. In France, they only drink this in the summer. So we should only drink it in the summer. We're not France. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not France. I want to make two other quick points here that that maybe the both of you will have thoughts on that are touched on in this report. The first is that wine is also, I think, suffering from the sort of wearing off of a of a longstanding health halo of its own. Yes, where I think if you look at the trends, a lot of the explosion of wine's popularity in the U.S. in the '90s comes from a sort of mix of a previous sort of temperance or sort of proto-temperance movement in the 80s, and then the sort of all the reporting around the Mediterranean diet, the French paradox, et cetera, and a lot of people being suddenly being like, oh, 
red wine in particular is the kind of drinking that's healthy or healthier. And we're just no longer in that sort of paradigm anymore where people think of wine as the healthiest option for drinking. Obviously, some people still see it as being healthful. And obviously, we see certain categories of wine like natural wine trying to directly or indirectly kind of tie into that belief about wine's healthsomeness. Again, basically a myth, <laughs> but fine, uh, yeah. or at least unproven at best. Um, but the point is that that is a, a less salient message to younger consumers, in part just because it's been around for a long time, and because other things have come along that are trying to take that mantle, be they vodka, tequila, etc. So that's one piece. The other piece is, and, and this is, I think, also something that we have talked about and remains incredibly important to, to say here, which is not just that wine as a category is maybe not talking to the right people, the right publications, et cetera, but also wine in general spends so little on advertising. Like yeah. Yeah. I believe in the report, it says 5% of all alcohol beverage advertising is from the wine industry. Wine is not 5% of the alcohol beverage industry. Uh, it might be one day <laughs> if they're not careful, but right now it is a much larger piece of it. And yet it spends very little on advertising. Some of that is because in a way that is less true for beer or for especially spirits, so much more wine is produced at the small and medium scale, and those companies may not have yeah. the may not feel like they can advertise, or the advertising they do is very small scale, local, regional, etc. But even the big companies, you know, I think I don't know if you're I don't know how much you want to get into would want to get into this, Adam, but it's definitely true that like you know the big companies in spirits spend a lot of money. They do and the big companies in wine. You know, yes and no. <laughs> let's say yeah, right. yes and no. Smaller or, budgets, always smaller budgets, or like. Only behind like one or two brands as opposed to like spread, sure. spreading that money around. And yeah, I just, and it always, the argument's always like, well, the margins are better in spirits. The margins are better. And like, I mean, yeah, as a whole, they are. It's, it's, I get it. You know, you can make it year round. There's not one harvest. Like you can keep up with demand if you need to in some of the spirits. Obviously in tequila, you can't, mm -hmm. but you know, still. The, the you're right the spend has to increase like the way you you have to be talking to the audience more and they and i think they have to understand too that it's going to be a long-term relationship of brand building it's not just like a transaction yeah. like I, I think a lot of people in line too come from this idea like oh someone reads it once they'll convert like does anyone do that in real life no and i think again spirits understands that it's a long-term relationship where you continue to reinforce the brand in several different ways until ultimately the person's like at the you know at the liquor store and they're like oh cool i'm in the you know i'm, I'm gonna make margaritas tonight i've heard, you know i keep seeing this x tequila and that's the tequila they buy and yep. then maybe they become brand loyal maybe they switch once in a while but like that is what happens and yeah i think that there's this idea in wine i, I don't know maybe maybe there's Maybe there's more people in wine who are passionate and get into working in wine than have like MBAs and, and traditional marketing training. That's also quite possible at a, at a lot of the, the especially mid-sized companies. But therefore, I think often there's less of that strategy and more of like, well, I paid for this. So what's the ROI on this direct payment? And that doesn't necessarily yeah. all that's, that's, that's not true. When you talk to any really great marketer, that's not how marketing works. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think all of that has to change. And Look, man, we talked about a lot right now. This has been like a very, you know, intense episode because I think there's a lot wine has to do to fix itself. And I think, you know, it has to really reevaluate like who it's going to that are the current, you know, look again, no one's saying completely abandon 
your current champions in terms of the personalities and places you're working with. But I do think that wine has to reevaluate how much attention it's truly paying to these next generations and what it's actually doing and have these tough conversations like 5% of marketing. Wow. We probably shouldn't be there. Right. Like, only putting our, you know, only looking at this or that, we probably shouldn't be doing that, right? And I think, you know, wine as a community has also said, like, maybe we shouldn't be hating on these big brands that are doing it because if they're winning people to the category, again, like, I just, I love that that comment that someone made to me last week that was like, we understand when tequila rises, everyone rises. Mm -hmm. We don't care if it's one of our competitors because our sales were ultimately, our sales will ultimately increase too. And you hear that just a lot more in spirits than you do in wine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, they, and functionally, like, it's so much easier to convert someone who's already a wine drinker into drinking your wine yeah. than it is to get someone who drinks, you know, another other alcoholic beverages and isn't interested in wine, interested in wine, and then into your product in particular. Like, there, that is very difficult to do. And, and yeah, I think it, it's the same reason, frankly, conversely, and I think it's important to note this too, it's a reason why the some of the big wine brands and more kind of uh, established producers should probably have thought about what they were saying about natural wine at times because, mm. again, that may have brought people into the category who would have otherwise been uninterested in wine. And some of those people are turning out to be like, you know what, actually, maybe I do like wine more broadly and maybe I want to drink some other stuff. I think in the end, it's like wine is at a place where it has more competition from outside of the category than ever before and is under siege in a way. And, and that's it. We didn't even talk about climate change. Another piece of this entirely. Yep. Another episode, we promise. But like, there are so many things that are besieging wine. There's not the time to be looking kind of inside the citadel, being like, "Okay, who can we fucking turn on here?" It's yeah. like we got to band together and, and like keep ourselves afloat. And then you know, maybe if wine's in a better position in ten years, now we can start you know taking shots at the same team. But exactly. I, that, yeah. that just is. It's a very de- it's a very self destructive attitude that sadly is. I'm sure it exists in other categories, but it is very striking in wine because of the besieged nature of the industry. Yeah. Honestly, Zach, I could not have said that better. I think that you you have the exact way to end it. And I look, we clearly had a lot to say today. I, I'm sure that those of you that listen have a lot to say as well. So hit us up at podcast.vinepair.com. Let us know what you think. See how we fix this because all of us on this podcast are big wine lovers. You listen to what we're talking about. We're drinking almost more than half the time. It's always wine. So, you know, while we, we love to, to, to taste spirits and beer too, we're all very passionate about this category and it's got to get fixed, y'all. It's got to get fixed. So hit us up, let us know, and we will see you back here on Friday. All right. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. 
Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.